Acts chapter 18, I want to direct your attention back to the scriptures this evening as we've been taking a few minutes and going through the book of Acts in this particular year. A lot of wonderful things. Acts is a book of transition. It's a narrative sharing about what God does in the church after Jesus goes back to heaven. You can just summarize the book of Acts in several thoughts. In chapter 1, Jesus goes up. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down. Chapter 3, the church goes out. And they get out and begin to share the gospel with people. Whenever they go out, people come in. People cause some problems from time to time, and there were problems. The devil began to fight and began to work in the life of this brand new uh, organism, the local church that I believe was instituted by Jesus Christ and his disciples. If you ask me who the first pastor was, I think it was Jesus. Who were the first church members? I think it was the disciples. But it was empowered, certainly on the day of Pentecost, for the propagation of the gospel of Christ when Jesus said, it's good for me to go because if I go, I'm going to send the comforter and he's going to come. And, of course, we have that same Holy Spirit 2,000 years later. We had the same opportunity to see God work in a mighty way in our day and time. It's a great day to serve the Lord. And the more I read the book of Acts, the more excited I am to know that... Uh, that, that uh, God is working in some of the same principles that we see here in Acts chapter 17 on the, uh, little, the city of Corinth. Uh, God is still working to bring about his work today in your life and my life. And I, I've just really enjoyed it. Thank you for following along with me. We're going to begin, if we can please, at verse number one for a way of review. Number one, after these things, Paul departed from Athens. And came to Corinth. So it was in Athens, that's where he was up on um, Areopagus and on the Mars Hill. He was sitting around with the thinkers of the day, and they loved to hear something new. And they invited him after he had been speaking in the marketplaces, in the streets. And at this time, he's by himself. Maybe Luke is with him, but at least uh, Paul and, uh, excuse me, Silas and Timothy are not there. And so he's speaking. He gets an audience, and he speaks to them. When he speaks to them and finishes, he finishes, they finish the message as he approaches the resurrection. The Greeks were very, they were the Epicureans and the Stoics. It was all about pleasure, all about nature. And they did not believe in the miraculous. And so when he spoke of the resurrection, that ended the message. Not by his own accord, but they ended it. And some began to mock. And others said, come back tomorrow. We'll hear you again. And then some said, I believe everything he just said, and I'm ready to accept that. Dionysus and also Damaris were two specific believers that got saved that day, and there are others as well. But Paul, after that, uh, that uh, time, and probably stayed a little longer and shared a little bit more information to the new believers there, made his way 50 miles down the road to Corinth. As I said this morning, Corinth was a wicked city. It would be like modern-day Las Vegas Strip or the French quarters of New Orleans, both vile, wicked, perverted, alcohol, immorality. That's what it was. And everybody in the world knew that if you were from Corinth, uh, that was a vile place. They had a horrible uh, religion there and a temple that housed over 1,000 prostitutes uh, as a part of its pagan worship. It was sick, nasty. At the same time, by the way, immorality is sick and nasty. It not only has judgment, it is a judgment. Every other sin you want to try to do, you'll do it. But you'll not do it 
and, 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 and offend yourself any more than if you and I are not, are not uh, morally pure. Nothing will cripple you now and long-term like immorality will. It might be a few, uh, few thrills for a moment. It'll be pain for a lifetime. It puts on a blot that will not be wiped away. It challenges you. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, every other sin that a man doeth without the body. You can steal and not have that same complications. You can lie. It's not right to steal, not right to lie. You can gossip. You can be critical of a brother or sister in Christ. It's wrong. It's wicked. And it doesn't mess with you mentally, physically, psychologically, quite like immorality does. You want to mess around with homosexuality? You want to mess around with immorality? You want to play around with pornography? You want to get involved with some of the filth of this garbage of this world? You do it at your own demise. And if you say, Pastor, how do you know all this? First of all, we got a Bible, okay? (laughs) And I believe it because God said it. But I'm telling you, I've said enough times with enough people to see that it plays out. The Bible reminds us, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If he sows to the flesh, shall the flesh reap corruption. And corruption's a good word for it. You'll just eat yourself. It'll claw you out as a man. It'll claw you out as a woman. It'll mess with your thinking, mess with your body. It'll mess with everything about you. And it definitely compromises your future. And may God help us to be a pure church. And we can only be as pure as you are. You can only be as pure as a church as I am. But may we not be a weak link, a weak link in this ministry. you got some foul things going on. Confess it. Forsake it. Get help. Amen. We confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive our sin. One thing about sin, sin, it always gets its man. Be sure your sin will find you out. And the first day of sin is always the best day. That first day you looked at pornography, that was your best day. After a while, pornography starts messing with you. And if you don't mess with sin, if you don't deal with sin and go for sin's juggler, sin will go for your juggler. You want to play with sin, it'll start playing with you. You start setting up another account so you can talk to someone you're not supposed to talk to. You, you try to hide things behind your computer. or You want to get on a social media that no one else supposedly knows about or find yourself on, a, on a, some kind of a site Listen, friends, you're going you're you're to hurt yourself. Listen to the warning of somebody who loves you, and, and not just me. I love you, but no one loves you like God loves you. And Corinth was a filthy, nasty place. However, there were many Jews that lived there, and there were two Jews in particular, Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife tandem that had come from Rome because of anti-Semitism primarily, Claudius had made every Jew that lived in Rome, that had a business in Rome, to be uh, sent out of Rome. So they made their way from Rome, Italy, to Corinth, Greece, and there they go, and they live there. Somehow in the process, Apostle Paul meets them, and they join together, and they work together because they both have the same trade. They're both diligent, hardworking tent makers. I believe probably that Aquila and Priscilla, though they were Jewish, they probably did not have the gospel clearly uh, given to them at this point, but I think Paul made them very uh, knowledgeable of the gospel, and we believe they accepted the Lord. They would later become core members of the church in Rome. When you read the book of Romans, you'll see their names. You'll see it later on that they help instruct a guy named Apollos, who was an eloquent preacher, someone who very much impressed the people of Corinth. They liked him a lot. Um, 
but uh, he only had the, the, the information that he had from John the Baptist. He didn't know about the whole resurrection and the crucifixion. And so whenever they, Aquila and Priscilla met them, uh, him, they said, hey, man, you, you know a lot of stuff. You're very gifted. You, you, you're, you're very, the people listen to you, but you don't know the whole gospel. <laughs> and let me tell you what the gospel is. And they went ahead and told Apollos, and he became used of the Lord and a great partner and colleague with the Apostle Paul, in, uh, certainly in the Grecian area there, and was used of the Lord. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Now, I know that not everybody is uh, supposed to be married. Marriage is a gift, and singleness is a gift. Uh, and uh, however, it's a beautiful thing when a husband and wife can be a tandem together. It's a beautiful thing when they can complement and not complicate each other. When they can love and cherish the joy and find out their role and play it. When there's a husband that loves God and deeply loves his wife. When there is a wife who deeply loves God and gives reverence and admiration and affirmation to the husband that God gave her. And when they both serve God together, something is beautiful. And I, I love recognizing marriages on uh, our monthly basis. But the truth of the matter is, it takes just a moment to pronounce someone a man and wife. It takes a lifetime to get good at it. Every marriage needs maintenance. Every marriage needs improvement. It needs work. And uh, just like an Adam, and I've said this at the college several times, but when Adam was created, God, out of the box, gave him three things. He gave him responsibility, dress and keep a garden. He gave him a rule, don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he gave him a relationship, first with God, and then he would give him one with Eve. And oftentimes people are train wrecks because they do not, they do not, they're not responsible for themselves and for their responsibilities. They do not keep the rules, and they do not work on relationships. And relationships don't just happen because you want them to happen. Uh, you can't just have a relationship just because you have love for somebody. And love is a very expensive commodity, and, uh, but in, in it's obviously a necessary, a necessary ingredient of a healthy relationship. Trust is, too. Boy, learning to build trust. Learn to build confidence. Learn to be selfless. Selfishness is probably one of the greatest sins of any marriage. And uh, just, just selfish men, selfish women, got to have it your way. Uh, and uh, there's just a street named after you, one way. <laughs> and, and sometimes we can write our way right out of valuable relationships. And I think it's so important that we learn to love the Lord, love each other, and practice that, and I see Aquila and Priscilla, I get kind of excited, thinking I, 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 our, their names even rhyme together, and uh, well, we should have John and Lon, I don't know about that, but Mrs. Colson, thank you for laughing over there, I appreciate it. Here we go, let's look back at our passage of scripture here, verse number three. And because he was of the same craft with Aquila and Priscilla, he abode with them, and they wrought by their occupation, and they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath day and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And then I love for you to point out verse number 5, And when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And we talked about this this morning, most of our message this morning was that teamwork makes the dream work. Someone said the team acrostic, together everyone accomplishes more. And boy, I tell you, when you find the Apostle Paul, and we'll see later, he was scared to death. 
He was nervous. I don't know what he was nervous about. I don't know if he was nervous about going through another beating. And we might think, oh, yeah, that's no big deal. I think it was a big deal. I think there were things inside of him that said, I don't think I can take another stripe. I, I'm not interested in going to jail right now. I'm not interested in having thugs come and, and punching me and pushing me and, and try to get me out of the city like they did at Berea and Thessalonica. I think especially he wasn't excited about having the mockery and the made fun of on a, in a place in a, in a public sector of Arapagus and the Mars Hill. I think you, that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words never hurt me. It probably wasn't resonating with him. I think the words, the, the embarrassment, the shame, the disrespect that he received was really weighing on him. We'll find that in a moment. He's scared. But then his, his, his companions come. His brothers come. Silas and Timothy, and their presence pressed his spirit. He got encouragement to say, you know what? I, I got to give them the gospel. He had been there many weeks without sharing to them bluntly that Jesus is the Christ. He was asking them some questions and giving them some Old Testament things to consider. He had them stirred up and thinking about some things, but whenever they came, he said, it's on. I, I can do it. The Spirit of God's reminded me I've got to be a soul winner. And he, he spoke to them and told them that Jesus is the Christ. Let's look at verse number 6 if we can. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook off his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go into the Gentiles. And what he thought would happen did happen. Several of the, the people opposed themselves. That means they rejected what he said. He was in a synagogue. He told them Jesus is Christ. He built a case for it. And they saw it in black and white. And they said, I don't want it. It's interesting that word oppose themselves is the same word that he used to tell Timothy what to do when you're working with someone that opposes themselves or rejects the truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24, the Bible tells us the servant of God must not strive. He said, don't, don't strive with people. Don't get in arguments with people, but be gentle with them. Apt to teach Ready to talk when someone's ready to listen. Patient. Well, we need a revival of patient soul winners. People that when you see someone who's against it, and often we just write them off. And of course, the Apostle Paul is going to be very frustrated at this time. We see, and then we begin to oppose it. And then he goes on to say, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Who is a sinner's worst enemy? themselves. Someone that is living a wrong life, they're their own worst enemy. They're living in sin. They're opposing themselves. He says, look, in meekness, keep working with them. That's what meekness in means, adjusting to another's pace or agenda. Meekness means that I am, I am willing to be governed. I'm not going at my own pace. I'm willing to be governed by another. It's like riding a horse a strong, athletic, 1,200-pound uh, horse, and there's an 8-year-old on his back. And that horse is controlled by the 8-year-old. He doesn't have to be controlled. That little 8-year-old, he can take him under a, under a tree, rub him off on a fence, buck him off, reach around and grab his mouth if you want to pull him in, pull him off of him. He doesn't have to be controlled by that, but that horse has all that strength that he has yielded to someone else's wishes. 
And when you see that in your Bible, when you see that the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 is, is uh, love and joy and peace, and then it'll say, and, and, uh, and gentleness, the long-suffering, and then gentleness and goodness, and then it'll say, and meekness, faith and meekness and temperance. And those last ones are primarily toward God. One of our challenges in Christian life is allowing God be happy in the place and the pace that God has you. Many of us, were not happy in the pace, with the pace that God has us. And we're not happy with the place that God has us. And our problem is meekness and faith, trust in the Lord, and temperance, being under control, being, being not, not upset with God and not trying to do our own things. And oftentimes people get upset, they're upset with the Lord. They look around and find things that didn't happen the way they want to, and they just they turn their, their anger and their frustration out on God. But those temperance, faith, and, and meekness are all God attributes. He tells them here when people oppose themselves, they need somebody that will exercise meekness, that will keep on loving and working with them. If God perventure would give them repentance, what's another word for repentance or other words for it? It's a change, a change of thinking that they would acknowledge the truth. See, people that oppose themselves, they have fallen into Satan's prey, and what he does, he, he uses three things primarily, fear, lies, and doubt. Wherever God puts a period, Satan will put a question mark. When God calls you to serve him, Satan will say, you can't do that. You don't have what it takes. You're going to starve to death. We remember this with Jesus. When he got baptized, the heavenly father said, this is my beloved son, Satan, when he opened his mouth with Jesus, if thou be the, God said, that's my son. Satan said, if you are the son. We can see that throughout. He, he, he capitalized on doubt. He capitalizes on lies and he capitalizes on fear. And the opposite of fear is really trust and faith in God. But one thing we have a problem with and is people that oppose themselves do not acknowledge the truth. Truth is the, is the elephant in the living room. They just keep walking around it. And they, you, can't show, you can show it to them in black and white. You do this, you do this, this is your attitude, these are your actions. They don't see it. There's not a repentance there to acknowledge the truth about myself. By the way, it would be a wonderful day when every one of us got honest and humble. Humility and, and honesty are very attractive to God. Through humility, you get God's grace. He says, I give grace to the, boy, prideful people don't see it. Humble people can get the help of God. I don't know about you, but life is too hard to do it by yourself. <laughs> I would like to have the help of God. But one of the problems I have and that you have is that we are prideful people. We don't maybe go around and say, I'm the best, I'm the greatest gift of humanity you ever met. No, we don't do that. We just are very stuck on how I think, how I feel, and what I want. Everything has an angle, and it's my best interest in mind. It's how I feel, how I think, and what I want in a given situation. And when that is primary, when that is preeminent, pride hides, and it's there. And it, it rips us off for the grace of God. God lets you go out there and just kick yourself. And, and do your own thing. But you'll do it by yourself, and it gets real lonely that way. But he said, when the, when the Jews oppose themselves, and by the way, that last part of that verse, verse 26, says this. He says, 
We're wanting God to bring repentance so people acknowledge the truth, that they can recover themselves. You'll never be more frustrated than trying to recover somebody that doesn't want to be recovered. And you can't do it. You can't, you can't recover anybody. All you can do is you can keep working with them until God does his work and they respond to God's work. Then they can recover themselves out of this. They can take, they can take the choke chain off. But they have to recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who taketh them captive at his will. And I'm telling you, somebody who does not acknowledge the truth becomes, and I'm going to use this term very loosely, bipolar spiritually. They cannot figure it out, and they don't understand why they have, they're like this, like this, so quick. I mean, it's like, I love church. I hate church. I love God's people. I hate God's people. Everybody's a hypocrite. Complete in thee. You know, it's just, it's just they're often, there's like all of a sudden all, and oftentimes it's because they, that we're in sin that has not been recovered. And we have to recover ourselves that we, that Satan not pull them well, back and well. And I've been, I have had that noose on my neck. I've had that choke chain in my life. I remember, and it's not that I've only had it one time, but I remember a four-month period as a young adult that I just got jerked around by Satan. And I thought I was right, and I was wrong. God had to bring me to a place. John, you're an idiot. You're not seeing this. Boy, people were trying to tell me, and I couldn't, I was blind, I had blind spots. You know, wasted and made some dumb decisions. Well, you cannot, well, you cannot uh, underestimate what happens when you go into Babylon for a while. You can't underestimate what happens. Every day lived outside the will of God is a very wasted day, and it often is a damaging day. We don't want to do that. But he said, when they opposed themselves, whenever they heard the truth and they did not respond at, this, at the, at the uh, synagogue, the apostle Paul just said, hang it, I'm done. And he just did what Matthew chapter 27, he just kind of just, Jesus said, look, just dust your feet off, find someone else that will listen to you. And he did that. He said, you know what? Your blood's on your own hands. I'm going to do it. Look, I, I don't know about you, but I, I want to be faithful and I want to be a faithful soul winner, but don't move with the movers. Move with the movers. Always be asking God for opportunities, but move with the movers. And if people are opposing you, go find someone else. Don't spend an hour and a half arguing with somebody from a cult somewhere. Go, if to that guy's ready, talk to him. Go find someone that'll listen to you. One of the things I think is so beautiful about two men that we admire that have gone to very difficult places, but one of the reasons, Brother Kevin Wynn and Brother, uh, Brother Martin, what really attracted those kids, they wanted to, guys wanted to go as young men where people would receptively hear the gospel. Good. One of the reasons Brother Rick Martin said, you know, when, when I heard that people will hear the gospel in the Philippines by the thousands, they'll come do that. Ted Spear in Ghana. One of the things he loves about soul winning in Ghana is that people want to talk about it. And they have time to talk about it. And you can go if you want to talk about the Lord. Yes. We live in a different culture, don't we? A little bit, but you, they're out there. We have to find them. But uh, Paul said, look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Okay, you, you're, you're upset with me? Fine. But it's interesting that the guy that lived right next door to the church, Justice, said, hey, they don't want you. I want you. Come live with me. And Paul and Silas and Timothy and possibly Dr. Luke 
came inside. Let's look at the next verse if we can, please. Verse number six. Uh, they opposed him. That's good if we could please. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And boy, when they say Gentiles in a synagogue, that got them fired up. Verse number seven. And he departed thence, and he entered into a certain man's house named one that worshiped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. He lived right next door to the synagogue. His name was Justice. And it's interesting there, that's how he, he, the man invited him to come in. He went into his home, and he stayed there. Verse number 8, And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, will eat on the Lord with all his house. And many of the, 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 the Corinthians, hearing, did what? And were? We see this in the Bible oftentimes. You get saved, then you get baptized. I talked to a, a man the other day. I asked him, tell me what you did to get saved, or, or you know for sure you're saved. Well, I got baptized. Okay, I said, when did you get saved? He said, well, when I got baptized. No, he didn't get saved at baptism. There needs to be that. And then sometimes I talked to Lily the other day. She said, I don't know you baptized, right? Because I've already got baptized. When did you get baptized? When I was 12. When did you get saved? Well, in 2020, last year. No, I don't think you're saved. I'm like, yeah, I think you get baptized again. You need to get it done right. Said, Plus, when I was baptized, I was baptized with a sprinkle. A little dab won't do you. Okay, so you got to go underneath. Come back up. And remind him about that. But here we find that in this place, the guy who was in charge of the synagogue, Crispus, and Paul will refer to him in the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, he also converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we have Justice, who lives next door, Crispus, who is the chief leader, he comes. And now Paul, even though he had some opposition, he had some fruit. But he's there. Let's look at what happens if we can next, if we can, please. Verse number 9. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. And here's what he said. Could you read it with me? Verse number 9. Be not. He said, uh, he said I don't want you to be afraid, Paul. And oftentimes you heard me say this. But the reason he said don't be afraid is because he is afraid. He'd already gone through an upheaval. Yes, he's staying in a, in a borrowed home with Mr. Justice next door to the synagogue. And then I think in his mind, he's like, I don't know. And, and fear, God has not given us a spirit of fear. So where's this fear coming from? <laughs> from Satan. The fear of hurt, the fear of rejection, the fear of like it's not going to work. Is it worth it? And the Lord comes to him, and it's not, it's not, he didn't do this all the time. Paul had plenty of problems after he left Corinth. But in Corinth, nobody heard him. He said, be not afraid. Speak boldly. Get the gospel out. Tell people. Then notice the thing. That here's the great blessing of that. If you'll look at verse number 10, read that first line with me. Ready? For I, courage does not come because of who we are. It comes because who we know is with us. And the courage he needed to not be afraid was not who Paul was, not his intellect, not his physical physique. It was God says, I'm going to be with you, Paul. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. By the way, that's a wonderful thing to have. It's one of the reasons why I believe that uh, the fear of the Lord, in the Bible, when you see the fear of the Lord, it's usually talking about a conscious awareness that God is with you. You know, the Bible says the fear of the Lord helps a man depart from evil. You always elevate your behavior when you're around someone you respect. When you know God's with you, you know, people who do sinful things usually are trying to hide it. 
They don't do it out in public. They do it when they think they're only ones sitting in their truck or sitting in their car looking at it. They think they're hiding that. But when you know God's with you, you'll elevate your behavior. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. The fear of God is something that is the, it's, a, it's a conscious awareness that God's with me right now. Now, when I got saved, the Holy Spirit came into me. How long is he going to stay there? Forever. But sometimes, have you ever been to a party or a gathering that you were there, but no one acknowledged you? You weren't very comfortable? Join the Holy Spirit's world in our lives. He's there and he can't leave. But we oftentimes don't acknowledge him. We don't ask him, what do you want me to wear today? How should I respond to that person? He says, witness that person? I don't think so. I want you to give. No, come on, I might need that. He's ignored. He's frustrated oftentimes. That's why the Bible says, grieve not the? Yeah, quench not the spirit. Why? Because he, he has emotions. And the Holy Spirit of God needs to be, uh, needs to be adhered to. But he's with me, but just because he's with me does not mean I'm aware of his presence. That's for the fear of the Lord. And I, I find the book of Deuteronomy, it speaks about the fear of the Lord many times. And it, I think there's two things that definitely illuminate the fear of God. I think it's important you understand this. And one is when you hear the word of God. You can stay at home and you can read your Bible by yourself and God will speak to you, but he'll never speak to you quite like he speaks to you in a Sunday school class in services. That's why youth conference is so important. Camp is so important. Sunday morning, Sunday night, midweek service, you never know. But here's what happens. The word of God is preached. And faith cometh by hearing. And when we hear the word of God, he actually, actually, when we hear the word of God and we read the word of God, God becomes real to us. Uh, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, he said, look, when you have a king one day, I don't really want you to have a king. I want you to be a theocracy. God wants to control the nation of Israel. But when you come and you, you want to be like everybody else and you get a king, here's what you need to do. Every king needs to get a piece of paper and a pencil and write out the book of Genesis to Deuteronomy. Write it out so he has his own copy of it. And he'll read it every day. So he will learn the fear of the Lord thy God always. So hearing God's word helps me to be aware of God's presence. I think number two is when we return God's tithe. You can write this down in the margin of your Bible, but Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22 and 23, he said, I want you to tithe. I want you to truly tithe. Be honest with it. Tithing is not tipping. If you make, if you make $20 and, and, and you give a dollar and say, that's my tithe, that's not a tithe. It's a 10%. We know it's the rate. We know it's the responsibilities, access your income, access your increase, and, and uh, divide it by 10 and return it to the Lord through the local church. That's very clear in the scriptures. But the reason for the tithe is not only to care for God's work and his workers. It doesn't just turn the lights on here and gives us air conditioning and, and uh, fixes the things around here and all that, buy salt for the winters and and the, the salaries and, and the mortgage and all that. Yeah, it does care for God's work and his workers. But the big blessing of tithing and giving to the Lord is that it elevates your fear of the Lord. He said, you tithe honestly and you take it to the place that I put my name there. That's the local church. 
that you will learn to fear the Lord your God always. I'm telling you, people that fear God behave much better. They have more wisdom. They have more knowledge. They're better friends. They're better husbands. They're better wives. They're better Christians. It's a, it's a, it goes across the board, in my opinion. When you have a relationship with the Word of God and you're honest with God in your tithes and offerings, I do believe that there is, there is supernatural help of God's presence on your life. Paul says he's afraid, and the Lord comes to him and says, don't be afraid. Open your mouth boldly and speak here. Why? Because I'm going to be with you. If you look up, if you would please, the rest of that verse, if you would please, in verse number 10, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. He would have God's presence, and he would have God's protection, and he had a lot of potential there. Well, that's a great thing, isn't it? And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. The next is, is an amazing story. But he stayed there and he won many people to Christ as God said he would. He got pulled into the courtroom with Galileo. Galileo was known to be a very kind leader. And Sosthenes, who took the place of Crispus, who was the next leader of the synagogue, he either got put up to it or other people put up to him or he led other people and he made up false accusations and took Paul to court hoping to get him punished and beat and, and hurt and discouraged. I think it will help us. Let's just read it and I'll conclude with this real quickly. Look at verse number 12. So he stays there a year and a half. Verse number 12, and when Galileo, the deputy of Achaia, that's the, uh, the representative of Roman government in that region, the Jews made insurrection or accusations, one with a court against Paul. They all consorted to be against Paul. And he brought him to the judgment seat. They brought him to court, saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. This guy is messing up everything in our religion. Verse number 14, And when Paul was now about to open his yeah, sometimes we ought to be careful of that, don't you think? Galileo, or Galileo, he, he said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason that I would bear with you. He said, But if it's a question of the words and names of your law, look ye to it, for I will, know, I will be no judge of these such matters. And he drave them out of the judgment seat. It's interesting here. God had given a promise, a promise of his presence, a promise of protection, and a promise of potential. He said, I got a lot of people here. I'm going to be with you, and no one's going to hurt you. And now it looked like God had gone back on his promise. Here he is probably being held by, by police, pushed up against there and, and taken in front. And Mr. Galileo, you're the jeopardy, and you're the representative of Roman. This guy is messing with us, and he is teaching things contrary to our law. And uh, they, they brought him in there, and everybody's saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Paul says, so can I say something? He says, you don't have to say anything. I don't want to hear it. He said, if it were some matter, this guy broke a law, killed somebody, hurt somebody, stole something, all right, I would put up with you. But if you're going to come here and talk about your little, your law and what he said and what she said and all this other stuff in your religion, I don't have any interest in listening to those matters. Get out of here. 
They get, he drove them out. And then Sosthenes, the fellow that I think may have gotten saved later, he took the place of Crispus who came to know Christ. He's now the new leader. He's the ringleader. They take him. Let's see what they do to him. Would you look at it, if you would please, verse 17? And all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Galileo cared, none, none, cared for none of these things. He winked at it, so I'm not even dealing with that. Whatever you do, you do. And the fellow that came to, against Apostle Paul, God did a retribution. Kind of like Daniel in the lion's den. They got what they wanted him to get. God dealt with them that way. You know, I'm just, I just want to say to you, and by the way, I, I don't know for sure, but you'll see his name in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the same name. It could be a different guy. It could have been the same guy. I wonder when he got beat, if Paul didn't get in a conversation with him and maybe lead him to the Lord Jesus Christ. But this Sosthenes is mentioned. You can look at it in your book of 1 Corinthians. But I want you to realize, and I think this will be a good thing we'll close on tonight, is that God is ready to make promises to you. He's going to be with you. He'll protect you. Some of you, when you have kids that God's called to the mission field or called them, don't, 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 don't hold them back. Well, Brother, Brother, Brother Thompson told me about that, how that uh, sometimes a, a, a kid wants to, God's doing something, and mom and dad's on one side, other side holding them back. No, 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 you can't do that. You, you're going to starve to death. I heard, the wonderful, I heard a terrible story. Maybe some of you know the, the person's name. I don't know their name, but it was a man who went to a missions conference. In the missions conference, God called him to go to the mission field. He went home and told his wife. He said, honey, I believe God's called me, so if you're going to go, you're going to go by yourself. I am not taking my kids to some mission field where they can be hurt and killed and something wrong or get sick. I'm not doing that. And he understood that that was a no. Even though God had said yes, his wife wasn't going to go along with it. He continued to work, and several years happened. And underneath uh, her house and their house, they, they, the kid, they had little boys, and they were all playing. They went underneath the house, and they got into a nest of rattlesnakes. And one of the boys came out and said, you know, my brother got bit. He got bit by a snake. And she took the little boy, and she went in such a hurry and took them, put them in the car, and put them in the back of the car. And then backing up, she rolled over one of her other children and lost two children underneath her own home because she wouldn't go somewhere else that God put them to go. I don't want to be unkind about that situation, but let me just say to you, the, the most protected place you can ever be is right where God wants you to be. Because there are much people in this world who need to hear the gospel of Christ. And we see that God protected Paul, and he'll protect us. And there's much potential. I can't help but think in this day and time that God could not say to you and I here at First Baptist Church of Hammond, I got much people in Chicago. I got much people in Lansing, Chicago Heights and Ford Heights. I got much people in Hammond and Calumet City and Highland and Griffith and Crown Point. I got lots of people. I got much people in Munster and Cherville and Dyer. There's much people that need to hear the gospel of Christ. Why don't we see the potential? Why don't we claim the presence of God and let us accept his protection? 